Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon is brought to you by Bible teacher Clay Scroggins and was recorded on Sunday, April 16th, 2023. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. And you can also follow us on Instagram at, at FaithBridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you can join us every Sunday for our online service called FaithBridge Live at faithbridge.org live. Here's Clay. Well, good morning, Faith Bridge. So good to see you all, and it's uh, really good to be here with you. You guys had a uh, fabulous Easter, I would assume. Yes? Sure seemed like it. This weather today is spectacular. Wow, that's wonderful. As I was listening to Ken's uh, Easter sermon, I just was clapping, cheering. Yes, love it. Uh, it's, uh, I, I love the emphasis, if you haven't heard it, which I assume most of you have, but he really gave so much dignity and respect to skeptics. Right to, to those of us, honestly, it, this is not something that's for someone else, but this is for all of us. We all have questions. We all have questions about faith. And I just love where he went with it to talk about just that the power of Thomas being able to put his hands right on the scars that, that Jesus had, that Jesus did not, he didn't condemn him for his, for his questions, for his doubts. No, he welcomed them. He welcomed the doubts which is helpful for me. Uh, I've uh, spent my career as a pastor. And so I, uh, you know, the, the, the thought would be, oh, as a pastor, you don't have any doubts. Well, of course, that couldn't be anything further from the truth. I have doubts, questions, just like you do. And every now and then I bump into hard questions that people have for me. Uh, I, I'm not working specifically at one church right now. I, I uh, wrote a book a couple of years ago called How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. And I get the chance to go speak to businesses and organizations on that book a lot, which is primarily what I'm doing. But I do preach at churches a lot, and we still live in the same community where I was a pastor. And I bump into people all the time who still will, you know, randomly hit me, you know, feels like a, a, an ambush with a question. It, it happened earlier, just a couple months ago. I was walking into our daughter's uh, eight-year-old basketball practice. I was the coach, and I'll tell you where my mind was. My mind was on our game plan some of our substitution rotations that we were having. I just feel like we hadn't played as well as I know we wanted to play as a team in our previous game. And so I was really trying to shore up some of those things as we rolled into this practice. And a friend of mine who goes to the church where we uh, were a part of for a long time, he said, hey, Clay, come here real quick. Um, This is Zach, Zach's eight. Uh, He's got a question for you. Zach plays on Brian's team, Brian's my friend. And Brian said, go ahead, Zach, Ask, uh, ask Mr. Clay your question. He's a pastor. And Zach looks at me and he goes, who is God? (laughs) I was like, that is a question. Tremendous question, by the way, Zach. Great question. That's a question you really need to take to your basketball coach, okay? He is best suited to be able to answer that. And then I went back over to my eight-year-old girl basketball practice. I was like, I was in no no mental space to be able to answer a question that complicated and challenging. That's a difficult question, right? I mean, some of the more general and some of the more specific ones, but the thing I love, there's so many things I love about Easter, but one of the things I love about Easter is that the, the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus is Jesus is unveiling himself. He's saying, hey, I, I am God. I, I defeated death and I've resurrected from the dead. I, I am God. The apostle Paul called him the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus And so that's where we leave off right after Easter. But as we jump back into Acts, which is where we've been this year, just kind of traversing through the the building of the church, the the, the church forming, right? You know those stages of uh, group theory 
the way groups form together. They, they start with the stage of forming, and then they go through the storming phase before they go through the norming and the performing. But the, the church in Acts 6, as we find, it's, it's in a season of growth. It's in a season where more and more people, just like Faith Bridge is, where more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus, but they were experiencing storms. They were bumping into challenges. And so we're going to look at that today as we jump into Acts chapter 6, some of these challenges that the first church is bumping into. In fact, we've got a Bible for you. If you don't have a Bible, um, just throw your hand up in the air, wave it around like you just don't care. We'd love to give that to you. That is our gift to you. Uh, and if you have a Bible, turn to Acts 6, if you would, as we look at uh, really what, what we're going to see is we're going to see that, that there is an enemy. We know this, that there is an enemy and, and he obviously is out to destroy the church. And as we look throughout Acts, he looks to, he uses persecution. The first church, the followers of Jesus in the first church were obviously persecuted. He's using corruption to try to slow down the growth of the church. But what we're going to see here is he's using distraction. He's using just inward fighting with each other to try to affect the church, to try to slow down the church. We're, we're going to uh, break this up into two. There's really two mini sermons today. Um, I went to seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary and their preaching classes. They would tell you when you preach a sermon, you have one big idea, one big point. And so this is a sermon that is not endorsed by Dallas Theological Seminary because I'm going to give you not one, but two. So in a way, you're getting more for your money. So I want you to think of it that way, okay? This is a two for today. It's kind of a buy one, get one free. But what we're going to see is we're going to see first, what, what does the first church do with people who have complaints? And then secondly, we're going to look at how the, the first church delegates and allows people the opportunity, the invitation to serve. But before we get into any of that, I, I love this um, simple little definition of what Christian community is or what church is, and we're going to see it played out in Acts chapter 6, but I wanted to put this up on the screen just as we get the conversation going. Christian community is constantly forgiving others for not being Jesus. Isn't it? Thank you. One person said amen. He's like, if you live the life I live, you would get that, right? Christian community, it's just constantly forgiving others for not being Jesus. And that's why people complain, right? Because of each other. Because of the problems that we have with each other, the challenges that we have with each other. You, you've had complaints, you've had people complain to you. Maybe you've got complaints at work, maybe you've got complaints at your school, maybe you've got complaints in your HOA in your neighborhood, hopefully you're not the president of your HOA. I shouldn't say hopefully, maybe you are, and that's the way you're serving the community. If you are, we bow to you. Thank you so much for your service. We are indebted to you, right? But you know, hey, you know, people, people have complaints about anything, about the way the pool's managed, about what are we doing with the trash cans, about how, when can you put them out and when can you not put them out, about what you can hang on your house, what flag you can put outside of your house, when you, whether you can put your pool in your backyard or if you can put it in your front yard, right? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. And then people want to complain about that. And so that's where we pick this up, is that the church is forming, the church is organizing, the church is trying to figure out what do we do with all this growth but in the middle of the forming, we see some storming. People start to, they start to complain. And so this first little mini-sermon is about what, what do we do? How do we complain well? Ver, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, these are the Jews that didn't speak one of the Semitic languages, like uh, Aramaic. The, the, the Hellenistic Jews, they, they, they grew up. At, with, with the customs of Judaism, they grew up with the lineage of Judaism. They, they, they grew up 
understanding Judaism, being devout followers oftentimes of Judaism, but they spoke Greek. They spoke the native tongue. And these Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. They, they, they were upset, they were frustrated, they were mad. They were going, this isn't right, right? We, somebody should do something about this. And, and, and we don't know why were they, they, why were they being overlooked? We, we don't know, they don't tell us. We just know that they were. So this isn't even a, this isn't some kind of bougie complaint, you know, like, oh, I can't believe I'm having to stay at a Hampton Inn instead of a Four Seasons, right? Or like, oh, I can't believe I'm riding in coach and getting upgraded to first class. No, this is like a legit complaint. No, no, our widows who don't have a way to get food, they're getting overlooked in the distribution of food. It's, it's not abnormal for churches to have complaints, right? I'm sure Faithbridge, you don't have any here, but most churches have people that are, they're upset about something. They're mad about something. They're frustrated about something. And this isn't just a church thing, that this has been going on for thousands of years, right? I mean, the, the, the Israelites, the Israelites before they, as they were headed into the promised land, where did Moses have to lead them through? the desert, the wilderness, right? And you know what the primary hobby of the men and women who were walking through the wilderness was to do? Complain, gripe, be grumpy, right? Uh, my, my wife and I, we met in seminary. And so our favorite kind of joke to make is like a kind of a sly Bible joke. It's how we really connect. Uh, and I, I, our kids are now uh, 14 down to five, but when they were real little, you know, you've been around kids before, and when kids get hungry, it, 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 I mean, from the time that they're babies to, I mean, even now they do it. I mean, they'll come inside after playing outside. It's five, five o'clock, and they'll come inside. I'm starving. Are we never going to eat, right? They act, like, they act like that they're never going to get food again. But they do this as babies, right? I mean, they lose their minds like no one's there to feed them. And so my wife and I, whenever that would happen, ever since they were little kids, we would just look at each other. Like when they're just losing their minds over not getting food, we would look at each other and we would go, Israelites, you know? <laughs> some, some things don't change, right? I mean, they're still complaining about, when are we gonna eat? And I wish we were back in Egypt and it was better when we were enslaved, right? This is the way of humanity. This is what humans do. We complain about things. But honestly, what we're going to see here is we see this little framework. We see really a, 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 a model for not only how to complain well, but also what to do when people complain. Because yeah, the apostle Paul in some of his writings, I mean, he severely condemns complaining. In his letters, particularly in Philippi, he says, do not grumble or complain. The whole letter hinges upon that idea that the church was experiencing breakdown and disruptions and factions because people were complaining about things. But we all know this, some things need to be complained about. Some things are wrong. There are injustices in the world. There are things that are just not right. So what do we do? How do we complain in a way that is effective? that is mature. And honestly, I, I, don't, I don't know a lot about the Hellenistic Jews, but it seemed like in this case, they got it right. 
They complained in a really great way. And to the credit of the the apostles, the 12 that had been with Jesus, to the credit of the first church, they handled the complaint really, really well. And so I hope this will be in this first little mini sermon, I hope this will be just a model, just a model for how do you complain and then what do we do with the complaint? So verse two, so they're complaining about, hey, our widows are not getting taken care of. Okay, this is wrong. Somebody should do something about this. Verse two, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and they said, quote, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Verse three, brothers and sisters, so choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and who are wise, who have wisdom. The stipulations for who we're gonna choose. We're gonna choose men who have the Holy Spirit of God inside of them and men who have a history of being wise. Maybe these are men who, they handle complaints rationally. They handle complaints maturely. They know how to deal with complicated situations. They have a sense of wisdom. Choose from among you these seven men who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now in the second mini sermon, we'll talk more about the, the, the delegation that they had to figure out, that, that, that they were conflicted. They were going, hey, we're not saying one's better than the other. We're not saying that, oh, everybody ought to be all about preaching the word of God and praying for others. No, they don't say that. They said, no, this is legitimate that we are called to take care of widows. We are called to take care of the least of these. Our model, Jesus himself, our savior, our Lord, that was his business, was elevating the needs of the outcasts, of elevating the men and women in this society who would get overlooked. And so we know we should be all about that. It's not about one or the other. It's about how do we accomplish all of this? We'll get to that in just a second. But what we first see here is we first see this complaint, right? Hey, our widows are not getting taken care of. What should we do about that? And so they came up with a solution. They said, well, let's figure this thing out. Let's meet together. Let's talk about it sensibly. Let's come up with a solution. And then look, look at what the next verse says. I love this simple little phrase. This proposal pleased the whole group. Everybody was going, all right, we're good. Let's, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's give it a shot. Now, who does the whole group include? Both factions, both parties, the whole group, the Hellenistic Jews, the Hebraic Jews, both of them go, yes, this is good. We like this. All right, we're good. And and in doing so, I want to extrapolate just a couple of of principles, a couple of insights into how to complain. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to give you these. There are five of them, one through five. If you're not a note taker, I'm still gonna give them to you, one through five, same thing. But for those of you that, I don't know why, I feel like I needed to tell the note takers, this was for you. But I had, I, honestly, I had you in mind, all right? When I, was, when I was coming up with this, I had you in mind. Here's five ways to handle complaints. Five ways to complain well, five ways to respond well to complaints. Number one, raise the complaint with civility, right? Don't stomp around. Don't feel like you have to get violent. Don't yell out murderous threats to people. Don't be pouty about it. Just raise the complaint with some civility. Excuse me. We have widows. They don't have a way to get food. We have a system of distribution. It seems that they're being overlooked. It's very civil, right? 
That's step one, is they raise the complaint with civility. Now, I know in your case, you're going, well, they must not have cared, or they didn't have any passion, or they, they didn't understand what was on the line, right? Because we go, no, I gotta bring my passion. I've gotta show how important this is to me in the way that I raised the complaint. Not necessarily, not if you wanna get something done, right? I mean, we're losing our civility as a society. And so maybe we use this as a model to go, hey, when something is wrong and things are gonna be wrong, Christian community is constantly forgiving others for not being Jesus. So there are going to be times where someone gets overlooked, something happens, a breakdown occurs, but would we commit to raising the complaint with civility? And then secondly, give the benefit of the doubt, right? That means not assuming a motive, as best as we can tell. Now, we don't have all the details because Luke, the doctor who wrote Acts, he doesn't give us all the details, but as best as we can tell, the Hellenistic Jews, they didn't go, oh, I know why you're doing this. You think you're better than us. You think your widows are better than our widows. That's why you're doing it. They didn't say that. They didn't assume a motive. They didn't accuse anyone of anything. No, they gave the benefit of the doubt. I, I'm just assuming, I know you're wonderful people, you're giving your life to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. Therefore, I'm sure you didn't mean to do this. Isn't that just better? Have you ever been on the other side of that, right? When someone assumes motive or assumes a tent, intent uh, for, for you, they go, oh, we know why you did this. It's because you don't care. It's because you think you're better. And you go, oh my goodness, no, no, I promise you, it was an oversight. I just didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't realize it. Thank you for bringing it to my attention, right? But it's horrible when someone accuses you of motive. And so if you're gonna raise a complaint, it's just better to suspend the judgment and then give them the benefit of the doubt. Number three, would you be open to a solution that the Hellenistic Jews seem to be open to a solution? Hey, we're not, we're not telling you what should happen. We're not telling you what we think you should do. We have thoughts. If you would like to invite those in, we would offer them. But we're just raising our complaint with civility. And then it seemed like they gave them the space, right? They gave them the space to be able to come up with the solution. Number four, then it seems like they were willing to give the solution a try, right? How do we know this? Well, because the proposal... The proposal was accepted. It pleased the whole group, right? They went along with it. They go, all right, well, if that's what we're gonna do, let's give it a shot. You know, they didn't go, um, they're, they're gonna list the seven men in just a second. You know, as far as we can tell, they didn't go, ooh, that choice you made, we actually have been around a couple of those and I do not trust them with the distribution of the food. I've seen their uh, hand-washing techniques and it is less than, right? No, they didn't say that. They said, okay, we are open to the solution. This is your deal. This is what you're running. And so we're going to give it a try. And then lastly, not only, were, not only were they willing to give the solution a try, but number five, you can flip to number five. They accepted the outcome of the process, right? They accepted the outcome. They said, okay, let's see how this goes. Now, we, we don't get an update in Acts, we, we don't get an update uh, or at least a, a frequent update. They're gonna put, they're gonna tie a little bow on it in verse seven. Luke's gonna tell us, hey, th th things, 
things kept moving at a pretty nice pace. So as best as we can tell, this worked. This solved the issue. And part of the reason why it worked is because the attitude you bring to solutions, you know this, the attitude you bring to solutions will determine whether or not it works or not. More important than the right idea is willing to give the idea a chance with the right attitude. This is maturity. This is what Jesus followers do. This is what men and women who are filled with the spirit of God and have wisdom do. Yeah, we raise complaint. Sure, if you have a complaint, raise your complaint. But would you do it with some civility? Would you do it and give others the benefit of the doubt? Would you be open that there is a solution to the problem? We, hey, we want to get on the same side of the booth and we want to solve this thing together. We're not going to put this in between us. And would you just allow for the fact that there is a process? Would you let the process work itself out? I, I think it's a great model. I think it's a great model for how to complain and also how to handle complaints. But now let's get to what the big idea the big idea of this passage is not about what to do with complaints. That was just an aside. Now let's get to the big idea of it. So verse five, this proposal pleased the whole group. I told you they would name the seven men, which is what they do now. So they chose Stephen, foreshadow, a man of full of faith. We'll see Stephen in Acts seven, the next chapter. Actually at the end of this chapter in chapter six. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip. They chose Pecurus. They chose Nicanor. They chose Timon, they chose Parmenas, and then they chose Nicolas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So they decided, they said, look, we, we have this unique thing, right? I mean, we were with Jesus. That's why we call them apostles, these 12 men, 11 of them, you had Judas who, they replaced Judas right at the beginning of Acts. And now we have these 12 men that were, they followed him around. They were part of his ministry and they were responsible for taking this message and spreading it to the ends of the earth, which was what Jesus' commission was in Acts 1.8. He says, go, take this message. And they had a unique perspective because they had been with him. Were they the only ones capable of preaching the word of God? No, but they were uniquely qualified to do it. See, a lot of times we try to elevate different gifts or different responsibilities over the other. I don't think that's what this is about. I don't think this was about, hey, um, if you become one of the ones who preach the word of God, we're, we're gonna expand your platform. We're gonna give you the opportunity to, to really make a name for yourself. They, they, didn't, they weren't thinking any of that. No, no, they weren't about making a name for themselves. These men died for the cause. They gave up their life. These men were willing to do anything for the sake of the gospel that somebody might know about Jesus. It's not about what's better, being the one who preaches the word of God or the one who's distributing the food. No, no. It's about organization. It's about delegation. A lot of times in the church world, we hesitate with this kind of conversation, this kind of language, right? Because people, people don't like the idea of organized religion, right? And I get it because there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of issues with organized religion. But 
naturally, when things grow, we should organize, right? We should put some thought into it because it matters, because we care. And this is what the first church is doing is they're organizing. In the same way, we have an Old Testament model of this as well, right? Remember when Moses, that Moses, this is um, the, the way he governed that they were, he, he was the one, he was kind of the judge that was solving everyone's problems. And there was a long line. And so he, um, he happens to have this one situation where his father-in-law comes to visit and his father-in-law gives him some unlis, un, unsolicited advice, right? Which not always great, doesn't always work out that way, right? You, you have your own story of your father-in-law giving you some unsolicited advice. But in this case, Jethro, this wise man, looked at this long line, he goes, Moses, this is ridiculous. Have you talked to the people in the back of the line? Moses is like, well, eventually I do when they get to the front of the line. He's like, well, they're back there and they're frustrated, man. This is, this is absurd. They're standing in line for a day and they got an issue. They got a problem. They got a challenge and they're just waiting here to solve. Why don't we do this? Why don't you get some other people who are capable to be able to solve their smaller problems and then only the big ones, the most complicated ones get to you? Again, we see it. God organizing his people to be able to accomplish more. This is what God does, and this is what God is doing in Acts 6. He's he's giving people an invitation to come and use your gift. Come and take that thing that you do and use it in such a way that other people learn about my love and learn about my goodness and learn about my grace and learn about my salvation so that it changes people's lives. And so today, the invitation is real simple. I, I, I would love to just invite you to... Be a part of doing more of this. A lot of you are already deeply engaged, but what we're going to see here in Acts 6 is this beautiful model of the church going, hey, what is your gift? What are you good at? What are you uniquely qualified to do? What what is the thing that you really have an ability to do? Let's take that and let's use it to introduce more people to Jesus. So let me me give you three simple ideas. The, The second little mini sermon. I'm just going to give you three simple ideas on the power of serving. Some things we learn from this passage. The first one is this. Nothing should be beneath you to do. Right? I mean, if we're servants of Jesus, nothing should be beneath us to do. We don't ever get too big for our own britches. We don't ever get too big to do some of the, what seem like more mundane less thoughtful, less menial tasks. No, even even the apostles or so it seems, they were the ones distributing the food. They were so involved in serving widows. They were so deeply engaged in serving other people that it seems they, things were getting overlooked. They weren't able to handle it all. And they were unintentionally neglecting preaching the word of God. And they all knew "We, we, we can't do this. This this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But they were so involved with the lives of other people. Don't ever get too big to where you can't do even the smallest task, right? Be willing to sweep. Be willing to stack chairs. Be willing to work in the parking lot. Be willing to, 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 to serve as a greeter, right? Those are beautiful, valuable, meaningful tasks that the church needs. We need everybody engaged. And you know how this works. I mean, when the house is on fire, 
right? I mean, when there's serious work to be done, when something's really important, you, you don't go, no, that's not really what I'm good at, you know? I don't really feel fulfilled doing that. I mean, I feel like I have another gift. That I, I, that, that's not really what I want to do. No, you go, put me to work. Tell me what needs to be done. And so step one, for those of you that maybe are new to Faith Bridge, or maybe you're new to faith, or maybe you're still trying to figure out what it is you believe, trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus? If that's you, just raise your hand and go, I'll jump in anywhere. Just put me in, coach. I want to serve. I want to help out. I want to be a part of building, not this church. I want to be a part of building the kingdom of God and bringing it to earth. Don't ever, don't ever think that you're too big to do any task, right? The apostles weren't, and neither should we. Number two, don't confuse what you can do with what you were made to do, right? I mean, this is a leadership principle, that you were made to do something. God has specifically put something in your life. Honestly, not only were you made to do it, but it probably flows out of some of your own hurt that you've been through, right? Some of the challenges that you've been through. It's uniquely set you up to be able to serve other people in a certain way. And don't let what you can do distract you from what you were made to do. The apostles were made to preach the word of God to other people, but they were getting distracted. They were getting distracted by all these needs that were in front of them when they just had to think differently and invite other people in to be engaged with what God was doing. Lastly, this is real simple, but... Don't, 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 don't ever adopt the savior complex, right? That says only I can do this. This is, this is a big deal for all of us, right? Because the truth is, there isn't anything that only I can do. Now, maybe you've been leading a group or teaching a class or standing in a particular spot, and maybe it's time to, for God to birth something new for you so you can open up the opportunity for somebody else to get to serve in that way right? This is the way God works. The savior complex is, it was if the apostles were to go, oh, how dare you want to serve food to the widows? That's what we do. We're the only one. Were you with Jesus? Oh, you weren't. That's right. I forgot that. Well, we were, okay? Every step of the way. Peter was like, I mean, well, not every step, but most of the time we were right there with him, right? No, it would have been real easy for them to go, they can't do that, they're not qualified. No, we have to allow other people the opportunity to try and to fail and to try again and to because God has given us all that opportunity. And, and look at what happened. When they all got engaged, when, when they invited other people in, when they delegated, when they opened up room for people like Stephen and, 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 and Timon to, to, to have an opportunity to go serve other people, look at what happened. Look at verse seven. So the word of God spread. The word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests, Jewish men, Jewish women became obedient to faith. God used it. God used it to grow. To grow the church, but also to reach new people. And that's what's happening at FaithBridge. You all are growing. Which means there's opportunity for people to step up. 
And so if you're not currently engaged in serving somewhere, I, I would just encourage you, raise your hand. Say, hey, I want in. I want to help out. I, 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 want, I want something that I can do to use my gift. Let, let me ask you two questions as we wind this down. Th- these, are, these are those uh, self-actualization kind of questions. These are not questions to be answered in five seconds. I mean, these are things to really think about. But number one, what, what are you giving your life to? When you think about your week, when you think about your month, your year, your time, your talent, when you think about what you have, your, your, your wealth, whatever treasure you have, what are you giving your life to? What do other people say you're giving your life to? What, what, what's most important to you? And secondly, what, will it last beyond your life? Are you giving your life to anything that's going to outlast you? This is the beauty of the church, is the church is not going anywhere. And so in some ways that makes us think, well, then why would I, they don't need me. And the truth is, they don't. God doesn't need us. He doesn't. But that's not what it's about. It's about following our maker. It's about following our savior and giving our lives away to other people. And it's about getting to experience the joy of serving other people. And it's about loving other people like Jesus did when he said, a true friend, a true friend lays down his life, lays down her life for others. And so I just want to invite you Keep being the church. And if you're not engaged with the church, come get engaged with the church. And let's lay our life down so that others might know. Heavenly Father, I pray that today that you would give us the creativity to know how to do that. God, you want to do that in so many different ways, in so many different places and so many different communities and God, particularly in this community, you've got ways for every single one of us to come and give our life away. And so I just pray that today would maybe start something in us. Maybe it would go, hey, I've been meaning to, I've been wanting to, and I just didn't know. Maybe, maybe it would just create a new, a new desire for us or remind us of something we've wanted for a while. But God, I just pray that you'll use this in the same way that you used it in the first church so that more people might know that you are good, that you love them, and that you've given your life for them so that they might know you. We give you all the honor and all the glory for this. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.